When life is difficult, Samaritans are here. Day or night, 365 days a year. You can call them for free on 116 123. Email them at joe at or visit Whatever you're facing, the Samaritans are here to listen. Hi there, this is Nick from the Beer Podcast. This is a quick trigger warning. The following podcast contains information regarding suicide, substance abuse and alcohol abuse. If you are affected by any of these things, please reach out to the relevant services for the help that you deserve. Thank you. Welcome to the Beer Podcast. My name is Nick Mins. Uh, tonight I am lucky to be joined by Paul from MMH, which I do believe is, uh, well, MMH Warriors, sorry, um, on Instagram. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for joining us tonight, mate. Oh, bless you. Thank you very much for having me, mate. No, I say we, we have been trying for the last <laughs> two weeks to get on, but like we've just been saying before, and life does throw things in the way, and yeah, so we're here now, we're here to talk, so that's that's the main thing. Yep. So, tell us a little bit, Paul, about um, I suppose where your where your mental health journey really begun. Okay, mate. Um, so for me, it all went back to when I was six years old. Um, parents separated. I mean, we were Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, the perfect little family and brother and sister. You know, going to church and it was just like that happy place uh parents separated six years old and then my dad went off and obviously he eventually moved on met someone else my mum um just went from different chaps along the way and then I had that massive um abandonment basically and that was the trigger for me and that is what actually started off my uh, borderline personality disorder right okay so tell us a little bit about how that affects you uh but because we've I think we've we've um I've had others on that have kind of um, had BPD, but their experiences have been kind of varied, really. So, Yeah, yeah so um, mine basically it didn't really start to rear its ugly head until I got into my adolescence. So I'd say my late teens, when I started to maybe date girls, that's when it really started showing. It was massive jealousy, anger, like just uncontrollable rages and stuff. And then um, I started to have this like real chronic emptiness. I just felt constantly alone even if I was in a room full of people I just felt lonely very unfulfilled and unhappy and then as life went by into my 20s that's when the, the drinking the drugs the street fighting the just reckless driving dangerous sex it was just all I had no desire to live I, uh, I had a death wish and I, on a daily basis I would pray just to die because I thought I didn't want to be here no more it was just it was exhausting but not even knowing what was going on for me because um I seek professional help, but I got misdiagnosed a couple of times. Um, and then they'd, they'd lead me down the road of a certain type of therapy. It just wasn't, it wasn't doing it for me, you know? And I was still acting out in these peculiar um, behaviours, which I had no control over, really. It wasn't until I was 30, uh, 30 years old I got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And that is when I got the correct um, help. I did the right course, which is the DBT course. And that is when my life started started to get a little bit more of a, a foothold do you know what I mean yeah so what was it that they misdiagnosed you with originally what would they say it looked like 
Yeah, <laughs> they said it was a morbid jealousy. So because of the signs I was showing, morbid jealousy, I had two experts come round, um, sat me down, basically had a little chat with me saying, you know, mate, <laughs> they didn't really offer me any help or support. It was so patronising. I felt so angry and I thought, is that it? Literally, it's like, yeah, you know, life isn't all sunshine and rainbows, basically. And you're, you're morbid jealous and that's just the way it is. And off you go, basically. And I, I remember my partner at the time, we were looking for like the little tick list of all the different things that you would have to have to be labelled morbid jealousy. And I was ticking maybe one out of like 15. I was thinking, well, that is not me. I mean, yeah, there was traits of jealousy within my borderline personality disorder, but that was not the correct diagnosis. And that was, again, through the NHS of years of waiting and pushing to seek help because I was in a bad place, very bad place. It, it, I'm, I'm just puzzled by morbid. And, and for the fact that they said morbid jealousy... I mean, when you said that straight away, I'd have thought, well, that's maybe if you like a symptom or some something that shows that you have got some sort of a personality disorder or de depression or something that's going on there. I wouldn't have said that that was something that you'd be just there you go, but no help whatsoever. I mean, how, how did that feel to you then? You know, did you? Uh, I mean, I, I was lucky I had my mum to support me and we were pushing a lot through um, private therapies. So I, by that point, I'd covered quite a lot but still struggling so much. And then I thought once the NHS got involved and they sent the experts around, I thought, this is it now. I'm going to get my break. Something's going to change for me. And like I said, I felt so disappointed. I felt angry and just frustrated. Just again, I felt really let down and lost and felt like I was no further in discovering what the hell was going on for me. Said for the fact that two times as well, that that had been kind of said, I mean, did you start maybe, I suppose after the second time that someone had said that, is that what you kind of, if you like, pinned everything on? Or was you still thinking, right, something still is not right here? Do you know what? I'm totally honest. Like, I, I looked up and thinking the experts would know best. Like, I thought, who am I? I'm, I'm no one compared. If that's their profession. So, yeah, I sort of just accepted it. But it was people around me. Like I said, my partner at the time was like, nah, don't be labelled for something and you're settling and you're already buying into it she said you ain't i can tell you not and x y and z but at the time yeah i just thought they're right and so so be it and i just again continued my bad behaviors and the uh, reckless living yeah so what was it like obviously you, you touched a little bit on you know your your parents breaking up would you say that that was a, a little bit of a well i suppose would you say that was like a main catalyst or was the other thing going on was the other things within the kind of family environment that were maybe adding to it uh i mean looking back in hindsight i was so young i don't even really remember it's like i blanked out quite a lot of it but uh obviously the more i've learned about bpd and it definitely is always between a certain age that you get triggered and i feel like that was the absolute activating event for me because, like I said, I felt abandoned. I felt like I was going to be left because my dad had already moved on with his new partner. My mum was out gallivanting, bless her. And it was like, who can look after Paul? Like, my siblings were older. They were off doing their own thing. And I just felt completely petrified that I was going to get left. And that is, yeah, so I would say that was 100% reactivated. But I must add to it, I do believe that a lot of mental health problems do run in the bloodline. So I, I do feel like my mum, who struggled, and I witnessed, I witnessed a lot when I was a kid, watching her with her panic attacks and anxieties and blowing in a brown paper bag. And do you know what I mean? I've like big meltdowns. So me being a young kid at that time, probably about eight, nine years old, it was quite a lot to take on. I think it shows that it stems back further than just myself because my mum struggled. Her mum had a nervous breakdown um, and so on and so on. 
So yeah, I think it's definitely a combination. Yeah, yeah it, it's interesting you say that because I think that that was, I suppose, like there's always this this sort of um, this argument of of is is it kind of like if you like something that could be hereditary? You know, the is is there something within within an individual where they're going to be more susceptible to develop, um, you know, mental health issues? I mean, I'm 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 in the camp where with you, I, I kind of believe that there's a good possibility. You know, my mum's struggled on and off for years with, um, you know, anxiety and depression and things. And it's when you kind of start to see those little things within someone else who's really close to you and a family member, and then you see it passed down to you. And even these other like aunties and uncles, which are very similar, you kind of get the feeling that there's, there's something within the family which is meaning that I'm more susceptible to go through this than, you know, if you like the average Joe, really. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. Definitely. So, you say, uh, probably was it in about your teens, late teens, that that's when you really started, if you like, the, the spiraling a little? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was funny enough because it, it was always when I had a girlfriend, it was every single time I was in a relationship. I mean, previous to that, obviously, I had the, the chronic emptiness. The, the cry and the feeling sad, the not really belonging, not knowing who I was. I was always either up or I'm down, but I, that didn't, to me, really stand out as a teenager. I thought, is it just puberty? You, you don't know what's going on. But in the relationships, it was whenever I, I liked the girl, that's when I had that massive panic attack. It was almost like that sheer anxiety of the abandonment. But again, it was subconsciously, consciously, I didn't think it. And it was a few of my mates who were like, wow, you're bloody really jealous. And I was thinking, really? Like, I, I didn't think I was, but clearly my behaviours were showing, yeah. That was it. That was the real signs. I mean, what sort of things were you? I suppose you know when that jealousy kick was was kicking in. I mean, what sort of things was 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 going through your your mind? I suppose at the time. Do you know what? This is the weird thing. It's like the, there was no real clear pathway of thinking. It was just it was just feelings. It's just the sheer emotion. It was just it was hijacking me. I didn't know why. I used to just like I said feel this chronic, massive, strong feelings of anxiety and fear. Like I said, like I was going to get abandoned, but I didn't. I didn't consciously know it. There was no real thought process. It was just an emotion. I just felt it massively and I felt really attached to the person. Even I'd only been with them for like a couple of weeks. I just felt like I really was petrified of them leaving me, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was interesting. Like you actually said, you know, that fear of abandonment. Because when, when you started talking about like the fact that you maybe jealous, you know, I suppose people kind of think they see jealousy as, as one of these things where, Oh, you just want to control somebody, or you want it, and it, sometimes jealousy can be very deep rooted within in in a, in a person's psyche. It can be something that they cannot control through past experiences, and like you said there, with that feeling of abandonment when you were younger, and then that huge amount of attachment that you've just built with with someone, and that, like you say, in a very short time. But that thing of oh, I've got something to hold on to here, but yeah. don't abandon me, don't don't go. You know, it's. I suppose it's people are maybe say, oh, well, it's it's unhealthy sometimes to be jealous, but it it can't be helped sometimes, you know. It no, like you said, yeah, no. I agree. It comes in different forms. Like you said, you could be jealous of someone's wages or what car they're driving or how someone looks. I never ever really had that in my life. It's weird, and again, like it was clearly subconsciously because consciously I didn't even ever think that they were going to cheat on me. I didn't even think they would leave me. Not blowing Trump up my ass, but at the time I thought, well, I'm sort of better than you anyway. So like you'd be lucky to have me. But the back of my mind's clearly somewhere. It was 
alarm bells are ringing, something's not right here, and then all these emotions were coming out. Yeah. So was it like a real spiral of emotions that you were feeling? Was it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it would. Um, like I said, it would, especially like I said when I got into my twenties, because I didn't really have even my first partner till I was like what seventeen, eighteen, and then it was after that. But yeah, I mean the signs of a uh, anger, rage, punching my hands through walls, breaking my hands, smashing things over my head, just just sheer rages, and then I would go off and I would just I'd want to end my life. I would have the thoughts and desires and just just to, just to get out of these horrible feelings it was just too much i was i was just gonna say you know would you feel like that's too much i mean the, the vast majority of people who i've talked to on the podcast who have kind of had them if you like suicidal ideologies it's it, it's been because of the fact that they can't cope with things that and everything just seems too much and when it gets to that point, it's like this is the only way I can escape how I'm feeling. You know, I, I need this. I need to do this because this is the only thing I can do to escape it because it feels unbearable. Yeah, and that is that's the tragedy. I feel like it's such a shame because, like I said, I know firsthand now. I've attempted it four times, different ways. How I'm still here, I don't know. Is it a higher power? Is it just pure luck? Who knows? But I'm still here to tell my tale. But. The feeling is, it's like, like you said, it's just that sheer desperation. Really, you look back and you're thinking, I don't want to not live. Like, life's precious. What a gift. It's so amazing. There's so many beautiful things in the world to be grateful for and have. But it's just when you're in that mindset, like you said, you've gone too far, you're lost. You cannot see the wood through the trees. So, I mean, it's just literally, it's dark and you feel so alone and isolated. And you feel like the only way is to literally take it to your own life. I mean, that's how desperate you get. It's so horrible to see. It's so tragic. So, so you've you've kind of gone through what you've gone through your teens into your twenties. Um, you've kind of had these spates with regards to, you know, looking to take your own life. When was it that things really started to change for you? Was it when you got the B, you know, the bit if you like the BPD? Was it when you got that diagnosis that things really changed for you, or? Do you know? What? I'd like I'd like to say yes. It sort of did, but it sort of didn't as well. It, like you said, I don't want to. BS you and say yeah I had my diagnosis I had my therapy and there's all rainbows because it sadly isn't I still struggle to this day I'm 37 now and I've, I've lived a long time with this disorder but I know it's, it's always up and down but yeah when I got diagnosed properly I, I do remember bursting into tears because my mum had actually diagnosed me not the doctors my mum had met someone at work who had BPD she was like well you sound just like my son so she read up on it and was like bloody hell Paul that's you. So she sent it over. I remember reading it. I was just like, wow, that is like my life. It was like literally reading the story of my life. It was crazy. So I had like real mixed emotions of like really happy, finally got the right diagnosis. Now I could be on the right pathway to seeking the correct help. Second side of me was like, now I'm going to be labeled. It's a disability. It's mental health. Fuck. Like, do you know what I mean? Who really wants to be around me now? So it was like a real push pull. It was horrible, but yes, it's the way it was. You know what I like about how you've just described it there is that you, you could have just gone bells and whistles. Yeah, it was fantastic and everything. But no, th- th- I suppose you saying that is is a, you know, with regards to saying, look, I got the diagnosis. That was great. However, it, it doesn't just like that click of fingers, it's gone. You know, I mean, I know when I got diagnosed with, with, with depression and um, anxiety and, you know, uh, PTSD and it's when those things come, you kind of feel like, okay, I've got that knowledge now, 
but it doesn't stop what's gonna you know it doesn't stop the, the kind of road ahead and you know like you say you have you have rough days you have some good days you have some rough days you know but I suppose when you know about it then you've you're educated enough then then you can start to look at recognizing the signs of a bad day coming treating that bad day and riding through it and then getting on the other side and then and and yeah everybody's going to have peaks and troughs which they're going to go through but you know for the fact that I think the honesty that you've just shown then in your response is just absolutely perfect. That That's what it needs more of, just honesty. Yeah, like you said, you can't sugarcoat it, can you? I mean, no, I, no. to, I would love to be able to say to the viewers, whoever's at home listening, like, you know, you get your therapy and, hey, presto, I'll be honest, I was that naive. I went in there so after how many years? I've had, over, I've had over 10 years now of different therapies, privately through the NHS. I've, I've covered it all, literally, sometimes twice around. I got the correct diagnosis and I got the DBT course, Dialectical Behavioural Therapy. That's pre uh, predominantly for BPD sufferers. So it's tailor-made. It's for a year, twice a week. So I went and did that. And I remember the, the ladies, bless her, she was saying, there is no magic wand. Like, you're going to have to put in a lot of work. I tell you, she said, it's going to be really hard. She said, you're going to want to quit and you're going to be angry. You're going to be crying and all the rest of all these other emotions. She said, but just promise me you'll try and see it through. And I thought, oh, yeah, being yourself, I'll be right. Do you know what I mean? But I was hoping that little wand, it didn't come. It was like a year and a half, I'll tell you. It was hard work. It constantly, it was just scratching that that cut that was not healing. You know what I mean? Picking at that scab. Yeah. I'd, I'd leave there and I'd be hating on my parents and my family. I felt, again, suicidal, depressed. I thought, why the F the hell am I here? Like, what's the point? A few days would subside. I thought, oh, I'm feeling a little bit better about myself. Back into therapy. And it was like that the whole time, man. It was, it was hard. But yeah, I mean, if I can, like I said, give them a message to say, please try and realise, like you said, there is no magic wand. There is no quick, fast cure for any of this. And generally speaking, like you said, you just learn to deal with it and manage it best way possible. Yeah. I mean, this is sometimes like when, if I've had, if I've kind of gone in for counselling or I've, I've had my appointment and I'll, I'll sometimes come out and feel totally exhausted and drained for the rest of the day. And you know, I suppose that's because you kind of, it's almost like your brain going to the gym, if you like, you know, that that's what you're doing. You're kind of exercising things. You're, you're kind of working things which haven't really been worked on, which you've chose to avoid. Yeah. It's like doing leg day when you've never done one in your life. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, there's, there's so many, there's so many good things, but you, you've just got to be willing to put the work in as well. As you're willing to put the work in, you're going to get, you're going to reap the rewards those good days are going to feel like, you know, you've just, you know, like England's won the World Cup. Do you know what I mean? It's going to feel like something that you really want, something that that that's like the best thing that you can think of. Um, but I suppose you've just got to be honest with yourself and honest to other people to say, yeah, that work is going to be worth it. But you're just going to have to do, you're just going to have to do it, that leg work, especially. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it, actually. It's so true. Uh, I mean, because I learned that on the course, that obviously the neurons in the brain that are, have been developed all these years, she said every time you have any negative thoughts, it's like a forest is growing up in the brain. Do you know what I mean? They're just getting thicker and stronger. She said, but with all the correct therapy and treatment and repetition, you can start chopping it down slowly and then you can start building new pathways and new neurons in the brain that think differently. Do you know what I mean? So again, like you said, it's just consistently consistency and hard work. You need to just stick to it. Same as like you said, we're building muscles. You don't go to the gym once a week and expect to see great results like a month later. Do you know what I mean? It's two, three times a week. It's consistency. After six months, you might start seeing some gains. Do you know what I mean? But it's a slow process. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I did when I had CBT, I had 10 months of CBT for health anxiety. Oh, sorry, eight months of CBT with health anxiety, 10 months with depression. And then I've just I'm just coming to the end of my my first kind of proper bout with counseling, which has been like 12 sessions. So it's been about I'd say about seven or eight months. And only now have I started to see the real differences in the way that I'm actually starting to think of things and my thoughts, my thoughts are changing in, in ways where I'm being a little bit more constructive, where before I'd be a little bit more pessimistic and I'd maybe just look for the easy, the easy way out of things, you know, instead of I taught myself out of things before I'd even started. Now I'm actually assessing things and noticing as well my like when it's time to stop. Like when when's time to to say, right, I need a break. Yeah. You know, I can't work through this. You know, I need to take a step back take time for me. Whereas, you know, but that's come through the work that you're willing to put in. So, yeah. so, so you say you did, was it DPD? D, uh, D, uh, well, um, it was um, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT. Yeah. Oh, DBT. Sorry. Yeah. So what was it? So what does that look like? Cause I say I've done CBT, but yeah, I was um, like done the cognitive behavioral therapy, but yeah, DBT, what was that kind of uh, entail? Yeah, so basically, like I said, it was twice a week. You had your one-to-one session, which is you, you go into more depth of your own personal life. You, you're writing stuff down. You're keeping a lot of diaries on your moods and stuff. So you, it's a good way of tracking your progress, actually. I'd really highly recommend that But if people are struggling. Um, and then you'd have your, your group sessions, so maybe 10, 15 of you. And they would do lots of different um like practices like mindfulness. So they do mindfulness techniques, whether it was with like a strawberry in your hand or your, your, your visual, your seeing, your hearing, your senses, and it's all like your breathing. So it's quite, um, it's quite practical, but good, quite beneficial actually, yeah. Brilliant. I'd say I, I find it interesting all the different techniques that there is that, that you can really use. You know, it's, it's, I think people just think you just go into a room and you sit with someone and you just talk. And yeah, that's one thing, but you know, that's like the counselling side of things when you get into kind of air everything. But the CBTs, you know, I wasn't ready the first time to admit anything. And then when I actually started opening up to CBT, I kind of got a lot out of it. It was only after the CBT that I thought, Do you know, what? I maybe need something else here. And then that's when I thought, if I talk, if I can just say everything to somebody, yeah, it might just help. And it has massively, you know, um so going down different avenues is always quite a good thing so let's talk a little bit about um mmh warriors so where did that come from uh well i mean obviously mental health's always been very close to my heart clearly living with it and going through it so i've always had that burning desire to help people so over the years i've been a personal trainer I've always aimed to try and help people who struggle with their mental health, um, trying to raise money for charities and homeless people and stuff. So I've always had that about me. And then it was only two months ago. So a light bulb went off and I thought, do you know what? I'm going to go for this. I thought I'm going to set up my own thing because no disrespect, but there's still so much bloody room out there for this mental health like, and for people to be helping. It's not all just about waiting for the NHS or the odd group like Andy's Man Club, which is amazing. And they are doing amazing things. And I'm striving to be anything half as good as they are. But I thought there's still room for more. Do you know what I mean? So I thought I want to do me and not necessarily be jumping on someone else's bandwagon. So 
yeah, the driving force for me is literally just to help as many people as I can with my videos, my talks. And now I've set up my man's group where people can come along for free. Um, one night a week, have a cup of tea, some biscuits, and just have a chat. Some like-minded individuals in a safe space where they're not going to be judged. It's not a therapy session. I'm no expert. All I can do is share my story, listen to theirs, and, and encourage them to talk. Because, as you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. So it's just getting it out there. Because men still are struggling to talk. It's got to change. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, totally agree with what you said with regards to there's still a lot of room and... Like I say, I mean, the, the things that people are doing is amazing, but sometimes it's just, it's sometimes people are in that right space to kind of go to something, if I suppose something like, you know, Andy's Mankle's brilliant. It's a big environment. Um, I think people, you know, I, for, a, for a long time, I was never really ready to do anything like that. I'd kind of, any big crowds or, you know, a lot of people. Yeah. I'd be like, no, 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 I can't do that. Um, but just something, I suppose, which is like, yeah, have a brew, have a biscuit, let's have a chat. And sometimes does does easy easy flow. Talking about football or talking yeah. about the weather can all of a sudden lead to. Do you know what I struggled with with this last week or this this really got me last week? And then that's that little conversation then starts things flowing. And then it's surprising how quickly then people will yeah. open up. Absolutely. And I've seen that with Mo and I's now in the group. Like you said, certain people feel a bit embarrassed. They're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm suffering with anxiety. I don't want to talk. I'm like, no worries, mate. You're not pressured at all. You just listen, do whatever you want to do. 20 minutes later, they want to talk. They want to start offloading. And I can see that it's almost like a little weight being lifted off the shoulders. You can even physically see it. It's amazing to see. And that's just from talking. I think that I think I think as well it's it's like not feeling alone because sometimes it can feel like you're isolated. Oh. I think when you actually realize like how many people are going through things very similar to what you're going through, you're willing then to oh my god, I'm not alone. I'm not yeah. alone. So I can actually start to speak now. I can actually speak, you know, I want to share. I want to see if it feels like that, you know. That's, uh, that's exactly it. I mean, what I'm really hoping to do is I want to get this registered as a proper charity where I can start raising money and get some funding. And then I'll have a pot of cash then for the certain people who are coming along. Well, for all of them, if I can, I'd like to have enough money to be able to pay for some private therapy because this is the problem that I'm really struggling with, which is probably what really got me wanting to start MMH Warriors was the NHS. And again, a big shout out to them. I don't want to sound like I'm bad mouthing them at all because they are incredible. They do amazing things. But they're inundated, they don't have the funds, they don't have the manpower, and yet people are being left waiting. And I'm, I'm a perfect example. This time around now, I've been waiting six years, six years for this next bout of therapy, which I was told five years ago, yeah, it'll be next month, it'll be next month. Six years later, I've attempted suicide again. I've, I've self-harmed numerous occasions. It's like, how many chances am I going to get? I'm not meaning to like put all the pressure on them, but you just get left. It ain't good enough. So I need to raise the funds to get enough money to say, do you know what? I'm going to get you some help, CBT, CAT, whatever it'll be for you and get you some professional help while you're potentially waiting, do you know? Because that's the problem. People just being left and they haven't got time. They haven't necessarily got time on their hands. So, yeah. I suppose that, that's that's the thing in it. it is, it's a time thing. You know, it's, I suppose people would see it as, you oh you, you just have to get on with it you just have to deal with it isn't sometimes as you know if that was the case we'd all be we'd all be all right <laughs> exactly um, you know 
some people are obviously in better places where they've got a decent um like support network around them or family or friends who can maybe they can they feel like they can reach out to there is people out there who are completely alone who have got no one to turn to apart from the nhs or you know the mental health teams and stuff like that if they haven't got the funding and they aren't giving things to help them people then they're just left out at sea they're left all all alone and like you say, then it's a time thing. If it's when they reach that point, and I hate to say it, but it's when they reach that point when they've like like you've done a few times where you've gone, enough's enough. I can't I can't do this anymore. No. But this is where things like yourself come in, where I think it'll make a real difference. And obviously, you're going to be making a real difference to individuals who are popping along to them things even now you know they're getting a little bit of help and you know when i set the podcast up it was if i can just help one person to not feel alone like i used to yeah that's all i all i care about i'm not really fussed about you know viewership so how many downloads it gets and things like that yeah sometimes it's good to see the numbers but i never let it kind of i never let the you know my, but the purpose of what I did it for drift away. I never lose myself in the analytics and things like that. The purpose is raise awareness and help people. That's it. End of. Yeah. I respect you, mate. It's awesome. It's really good. I mean, have you noticed though, like most people who are mental health advocates have struggled themselves, right? Generally speaking, even a lot of therapists, they've gone through it themselves. That's why they wanted to become a therapist in the first place because They've struggled. They know how hard it is. So they think, I want to help someone. And that is, like I said, my absolute calling now in life. I don't want people experiencing an ounce of what I have in my lifetime. Do you know what I mean? So I just want to help as many people as I can and to reach as many people. Like you said, for me, it's not about any validation, pats on the back, fame, money. I don't give a hoot about any of that. Like you said, it's just like you said, if you can take one person, then you, do you know what I mean? I feel like you're doing a good thing and then pay it forward and then hopefully they'll do the same and pull someone up. Do you know what I mean? We're so easy to step on people and walk over them. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it has to change. I mean, if this is still the highest, what is it, the number one killer in men under 45, suicide. I mean, come on, man. I know so many people personally local to me that have over the last couple of years, I went to school with them. I'm thinking how, like, again, you, you look and you go, but they're married, they've got children, they, they look quite happy in life, just like myself doesn't mean nothing basically when you're lost up here uh, it is it's the silent killer isn't it it really yes. is i mean dangerous. you even you know it, it, it's another one of those things where people always have this i suppose this, the, the misconceptions in media and film and things like that where people with mental health are always seen as you know i don't well a phrase that I've, someone who i used to know used to say the the thing him as window lickers you see them in white white uh, gowns in, in and out of hospitals, walking up and down corridors, staring out of windows, and it's not. And there's no there's no um, face to it. There's no. I mean, you look at look at me and yourself, and then you look at someone like um, Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park. You look yeah. at you know uh, what was it, Chris Cornell out of Soundgarden. Two mm. massive individuals yes. who had money, fame, fortune, family, and yet they chose to yeah. to kind of end things, you know. And and 
it, I suppose it doesn't matter what's going on in your life unless that support is there and unless you are getting active support and you're working on those things, that things will eventually start catching up on you and you don't ever want to get to that point, you know. No. Sometimes, some you know, I totally think it was with people, sometimes it feels like it must be, you know, the hardest thing to make a decision on. But I think these these things are so important. Just these these conversations between just everyday people and also kind of saying it like it is. I just don't think you can sugarcoat it. Yeah. No, I 100% absolutely agree with you. Couldn't agree anymore, to be honest. Like you said, even just talking, just this, something as simple as this, like you said, it's just helping to raise awareness. I mean, do you know, another thing that got me going, well, actually got me really thinking about this MMH stuff was um, I was at work and we were sat around the table and there was a, a couple of new lads there and you could see he looked a little bit depressed. And as the conversation started opening up, like you said about general, like the weather, football and all the rest of it, and then it started to flirt around the idea of like, how are you feeling? And he was like, yeah, my girlfriend, we separated, he's living in a caravan. You could see he wanted to talk, but he hadn't spoken. And he admitted after, he said, I've not told anyone, that's for ages. He said, no, I felt like suicidal. And it was all like, whoa, bloody hell. And I thought, this is just a little conversation for 10, 15 minutes on that quick lunch break. But I thought, this is the stuff that I need to be drilling to people and start asking them, how are you? But actually being sincere with it, not the fleeting, like, how are you doing, mate? Waiting for it. Yeah, I'm fine. And just walk off. Do you know what I mean? Give someone the time of day. Just you never know, they might actually open yeah. up. It doesn't mean prodding, but it just means that like you said just actually just giving someone that just that five minutes of your time, it can make a big difference for a lot of people who aren't talking. Yeah. And sometimes it's I suppose it's actually give it like you say, like giving them that time to talk. Some people won't know how to start the conversation. Do you know? Some people want to sit there and just go. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with my mental health. Do you know what I mean? They, they won't want to just say that, so they'll want to look for a little window of opportunity, and they'll also look for that thing of, can I trust this person to talk to? Can I trust this person to open up to? And like I say, if you're willing to kind of give them that time and talk, then straight away there's that that level of trust built, mm. and, and that can be the catalyst to them conversations happening. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, again, it's like because I'm so transparent and open and I'm more than happy to share my story with people, I think that lets them think, well, actually, wow, he's, he's sharing his story, stuff with me, do you know what I mean? And it, if you're man enough to do that, then I think, like you said, it, it encourages other people to want to talk out a bit more, yeah. Oh, definitely. Right, so we're coming to the end of the podcast and I always ask the same question every single podcast when I end and... The end question is, if you could give anyone who's listening now one little nugget of advice which you found most important to you, what would that be? Do you know, as cliche as it is, never give up. Just never, ever give up hope. No matter how hard it is, I can promise you from life experiences that there are better days out there. There are sunshine days down the beach and life is good. It's not always going to be as hard as it is. So it's, it's just like the seasons, you know, you just got to ride that wave until it's nice and clear again. So just never give up. No things will turn around. Yeah. I love that. Brilliant. Paul, thank you so, so much for coming on tonight. It has been absolute pleasure to speak to you. It's been, and thank you for sharing your story, your journey with the listeners. I say it, it really is an honour of it. Oh, bless you. Thank you, Nick. No, I really appreciate you having me on. Really, there. Thank you. No, no problem, mate. And uh, for everyone else, I will see you on the next podcast. <laughs>